I always like to hear the conversation of good fellowship going on. You know, Beck, I have to um, tell you a story about the offering. You know, have we taken the offering yet? No, let's take it again and all that. Well, one time I was serving on the elder board of a church, and we had a guy in our elder board. We were talking one night about offerings because they'd been a little bit low during this one particular season. I know that never happens here. Your offering is always more than abundant, right? Well, we were actually having one of those seasons where the offerings were consistently not quite meeting our expenses. So this one one elder said, you know, one time I, I was in a church years ago where um, they would take the offering early in the service. And if it wasn't enough, one of, the, one of the ushers would come back in and say, we're taking the offering again because we didn't get enough the first time around because they would go back and count it during the service. And if it wasn't enough, they took a second offering at the end of the service. So I'm not like giving you any ideas about you should be counting the offering back there. And, you know, if we have a second offering at the end of the service, you'll know why. But, uh, but I did think that that was funny. Somebody suggested, well, we could do this, you know, and I thought, I don't think that'll go over in this congregation very well. I don't think they'd go for that. So <laughs> anyway, I did have a chuckle as you were talking about taking the offering again or whatever. I don't know, but um, good. Well, it's nice to be here. I, um, as Beck mentioned, um, I was, uh, the staff and uh, elders and, and the council have been off on a retreat the last few days, and they were kind enough to invite uh, my wife and me to join them for uh, a couple of the days, uh, which was wonderful. So Friday and Saturday, we were out in Warburton with them and enjoying some time together in times of prayer and, um, and a great, great time. And uh, I, I commend you as a congregation to have that kind of, uh, that kind of a, an, an opportunity for staff and for elders, for the leaders of the church to be together. Um, my wife and I have been a part of those for um, many times over the years. What a valuable time that is for them to be together and to relate together, to enjoy the time together, but also to pray together, to seek God's direction for future and, and so on and so forth. And such an important, important time. Um, while we were together, um, they asked me to speak a couple of times on... Uh, topics that would be relevant to um, to church leaders, church leadership. And um, so we did that a few times Friday evening, and we did some things and as well as Saturday. But one of the messages over um, as I was preparing for that time with, with the leaders of the church, and then I was thinking about today and what I would say here, I was strongly convicted by the Lord that one of those messages... I needed to give to the congregation as a whole and not just to the leaders of the church. And you'll see why. It actually came out of the passage that we are going to be looking at uh, this evening uh, together as we look at um, Exodus chapter 19, that there was a prompting in there where the Lord very clearly said, yeah, this is for the leaders. It is also for the congregation. And so I want you to give them exactly the same thing that, uh, that you're giving the leaders of the church, and we'll see why in just a moment. Um, as we were together over the weekend, we were thinking about this one question. It's a question that I often hear churches ask these days. Uh, it's a good question, I think. It's a good question for us to reflect on and to think about. And the question is, what does it mean to be a missional church? It really is a new spin on an old question that churches used to ask. When, when my wife and I were very young, people didn't talk about being missional. We talked about being what, things like, what does it mean to be a missionary church? What does it mean to send people overseas? And, and what does it mean to, to send people from here? Are we sending people from our congregation to those parts of the world that are the least reached or unreached or something like that. And we thought about uh, being, being missionary and fulfilling that missionary calling in that way. But in our generation, in our time, we have really shifted that, I think, to a much broader way of thinking, which I think is actually much more biblical. What does it mean to be a missional church? What does it mean to be a, a missional 
people, to expand that from what does it mean to go to send people across over overseas or to some other culture to know what does it mean to be a missionary right here in this neighborhood, in this community, in this city, in this country, uh, as well as uh, over overseas and so on. I think there are a couple of very foundational questions, though, that we need to think about as we consider that question of what it means to be a missional congregation, a missional church. What does it mean for me to live a missional life, which is, which is something that every one of us as Christians is called to be and to do? The first question, I think, is the question... Who are we? Who am I? It is a question, obviously, of identity. It is one of the most basic questions that every single person asks in their lifetime. Who am I? And for most of us, it takes a lifetime to answer that question because every event, every season of life, every situation can somehow peel that away a little bit more. I go through circumstances where all of a sudden parts of my life become exposed as they haven't been exposed before. Entering into a new season of life, a new circumstance, suddenly I see parts of me that I didn't know were there. Or I add a new dimension to my identity. I remember when my wife and I got married, suddenly I was not single anymore. I am now married. Well, that adds new layers to my sense of identity. It adds words like husband, which is an identity. Then when we had, had our son, we have one son, and now I add father, and that adds a new level of, of, of understanding to my identity. When we crossed cultures and moved to China, that adds another level of dimension to my identity. Then we moved back to the States, and then we moved to Australia. All these things begin to open up things about how I see myself, how I experience myself, how I identify myself. But we need to do that as a congregation as well, don't we? Because we go through seasons of life as a congregation where our sense of identity as a people begins to take on new dimensions and new facets, and, and we explore that in different ways. But there's a deeper question in that, and that is, what is my identity as God defines me? Who am I in God's eyes? Not just who am I as I see myself, who am I as I want to be, but who am I objectively as God says, no, this is who you are, as I created you to be, as I have designed you to be, who is that? And am I living out of that sense of identity? Who am I as a person? Who are we as a people? And what is our unique identity as God defines us? The second question really flows out of that. And the question is this, what are we here for? What are we here for? It's a, it's a question of purpose. So this is who I am as a, as a person so what is my purpose? Why am I here? Why do I exist? Why do I exist on this planet? Why, why did God create me in the first place? What am I here for? And we find part of the answer of that in we, when we look back even at Genesis 1, God creates people in the garden as unique, as different, as as particular in all of creation with a special purpose in creation. He gives people a purpose that he does not give any other part of creation. What is my purpose? What is my purpose as a person? What does it mean to be a human being on this planet? But then we take that a step further. What does it mean to be a redeemed human being? I have a purpose as a person on this planet. God created me with, with, with a certain responsibility in creation. Am I fulfilling that? But then, as I am redeemed, as I am one of his children, I have a new dimension of that purpose. 
What does it mean to fulfill that purpose as a redeemed child of God? What is my purpose in God's unfolding story of of redeeming all things by the blood of Jesus' cross? That's what he's doing. How am I participating with him in that? These questions have taken me to a a couple of passages in the Old Testament. We're going to spend most of our time in one passage, and then we'll look at a second one. But they've taken me to a couple of passages that help us to think through those questions, and it, it helps us in this conversation about what it means to live as God's missional people in this world. So often when we think about mission, we think about plans and and programs. We think about activities. What are we going to do to be missional? But, But God, I think, wants us to take a step back and not just think about plans and and visions and strategies and things like that. No, I think he he says take take a step back and think about foundational questions like who are you and what is your purpose? Let's think about core things like that. We find part of the answer here in Exodus chapter 19. Turn with me to to Exodus 19, and we'll begin reading at verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and he called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. I want you to notice that setting there in verses 7 and 8. Why did I give the same message to the leaders of this church and now give it to you? It really came right out of those two verses right there. Here Moses has received a word from the Lord. He has received this instruction, this teaching, and he goes to the leaders first. He goes to the elders first, and he gives the word to them and then to the people And the people respond, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. That these these words of what it means to be God's, God's people and to align with his purposes begins with the leaders of the church. They must embrace this first but it is for the entire congregation. These are not words simply for leaders. They are, sim- they are words for all of us to embrace, for the entire church to embrace. And so as I read that, I thought, no, the same message that is for the leaders is also the same message for all the people of God so that all the people together can say, yes, all that the Lord has spoken, we as a congregation will do. So what are those words? I want you to note, first of all, the chapter begins with a very important word of context. Very important word of context. In fact, he goes into it quite extensively here, um, beginning at verse 1, describing this, this event of God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. 
it begins with a description of timing. And it places this event within the context of a much larger event. And that is God's bringing his people, rescuing his people, redeeming his people out of slavery. The event obviously is the greatest picture, the greatest act of redemption that we have in all of the Old Testament. Really, it is one of the greatest acts of redemption we have in all of, all of Scripture. What we see in the New Testament of redemption is really based on this event of God bringing his people out of slavery. Um, it would forever be an integral part not only of Israel's history of an, as a nation, but it would, be, it would define them as God's people. It would define their identity as his people. In this act of redemption, God did whatever was necessary to, to free his people from oppression in every single form. Think about that. We, we think of, yes, bringing them out of slavery, but he was bringing them out of multiple forms, multiple experiences of oppression, political oppression, as they are in another nation under the rule of another government, social oppression, as they are a minority living in another culture and experiencing the oppression of being that minority, being sojourners, being immigrants in another land. There is economic oppression. These people are in poverty. They are poor. They are slaves. They have nothing. And there is certainly spiritual oppression as they are not free to worship their God as they desire, as they please. So the Exodus is an unsurpassed story of God's overwhelming grace to his people. His absolute sense of, of justice and his exercise of justice and his, his ability to redeem what seems absolutely lost and to make something good, something beautiful out of it. You know, it's interesting, the longer I'm in ministry and the older I get, the more I love that word, redeem. I love that word, redemption. You know, that idea of redeeming is to take something that, is, that seems so hopeless, that seems so lost, that seems so bad, as bad as it can be, and God takes that and makes something beautiful out of it, makes something good out of that. Only God can take a situation like slavery and oppression and turn that into something that is beautiful, something that is good. Only he can actually redeem that. One thing I have learned over the years in ministry is how so often those of us who minister, minister out of our own brokenness, our own pain. That very thing that I found so difficult, so painful, so broken in my own life is often the very thing that God uses to minister to another person. He takes me through seasons of, of, of difficulty, seasons of pain, seasons of loss, and those, in some way, make me more sensitive, make me more able to minister to another person. Well, here we have God redeeming his people, taking something really ugly, painful, forming them, shaping them out of that, giving them a sense of identity, giving them a sense of purpose, and making something really beautiful out of it. Why is this, this, this context so important? I think it is important because we must always see our present circumstances in the wider picture of God's greater story. He places this one event within the context of a much bigger event that he is all about. 
It is so easy for us here and now, whatever your circumstance in life, whatever my circumstance in life, individually, as a congregation, as a family, it is so easy for us to to be so bounded in by what we are experiencing here and now. But here is God saying, no, I want you to see your present circumstance within the much bigger scope of what I am doing in you as a nation. I want you to go back and review your history. Where have I brought you from? What have I done with you in the past? How have I redeemed you in the past? What, is, what are the circumstances that I have brought you from? Because that will give you confidence for what I am doing now and what I will do in the future. We find God's people here living between the poles of, what, of God's past grace and what he has done and God's future hope and what he is going to do. And they find their present circumstance between those two places both of those places of God's grace and what he is doing and what he will do. And I think he wants us to keep that much bigger picture. How does my story fit into God's story of redemption? How does our story as a church fit into God's greater story of redeeming this community, of redeeming this this city, this state, this country, this world? How do we fit into that much bigger story? Otherwise, we tend to just get so closed in, don't we? We just look at my little world and my little pain or my little whatever. No, get out of that and see the bigger things that God is doing. Look at that. So as we step back, as we look at this passage, I want to find, I want to draw out three lessons for us, what does it mean to be God's missional people? What does it mean to be God's missional church at this time? I think we're all very aware that we certainly need God's missional people at such a time as this, don't, don't we? Like most of you, I, I got a notice yesterday, even though I can't vote in Australia, I think it's an interesting thing that I got a text saying, please vote. I can't do that, you know. I'm not a citizen here. I can't vote. But, um, but w- there's a vote coming up in this country about same-sex marriage. And I'm thinking, wow, 20 years ago, I never would have thought that this would be an issue is in ministry, an issue in life. And here, here it is. It is something that is right there in front of all of us, not just here in Australia, but, you know, we're much further down the road in the States. It's, it's legal um, in a lot of places in the States. And so we look at that and think, yeah, this is such a time that we are, that we are living in. We look at the possibility of war these days. Um, we look at all these different circumstances in the world. We must ask ourselves, who are we as, as God's, God's unique people and what, what is our purpose? Because our world is faced with some monumental questions. And we need to be people who are fulfilling that purpose as God defines us. So what is that? So, three lessons I want to draw out. What does it mean to be a missional church at this time? First of all, I think it means that we must be men and women who know their God and dwell in his presence. We must be men and women, we must be people, we must be a congregation that knows their God and dwells in his presence. Notice a couple of phrases here in this passage. Look at verse (coughs) 3. Excuse me. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him. Look at verse 5. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Notice that these are phrases that describe not only God's leaders, but they describe really all of God's people, people who hear God's voice, people who who have this deep desire to to dwell in God's presence, to to gaze on his beauty, to to taste his, his goodness. It is no small thing in this passage that Moses goes up to God. Because this is where he finds his strength. This is where he finds his message. This is where he, he converses with God. 
where he speaks and, and where he listens. It's easy to look at a passage like this and say, well, yeah, he's Moses. We would expect that of him. And I think that's an interesting response because I hear those kinds of responses from people. Well, you're the pastor. We expect you to do these kinds of things. But I think these are kinds of things that ought to define every child of God, not just Moses. Moses has no spiritual or human capacity that you and I do not have as well. The capacity to hear from God, the capacity to relate to God. God has created all of us with these abilities, with these capacities to hear from him, to speak to him, to understand his word, to relate to him as a person. This is not a special capacity. Yes, Moses has a particular calling and a particular place, particular giftings. But as a person, he is no different from you and me. Every single one of us has this calling and this opportunity and this capacity to go up to the mountain of God and converse with him. That's part of what it means to be a redeemed human being, a redeemed person. I don't know of any other way to live this out than in times of regular solitude with Jesus, sitting with him in meditation and in prayer. Those are the times when I nurture my own soul, where I deepen my sense of identity in Christ, where I am, where I am formed more and more into the image of Jesus. Every child of God, I think, is called invited up to this mountain of God. It's not just for the leaders of this church. It's for every single one of us. That is God's invitation to us. And so we see here Moses went up to God. And in his presence, he listened to his voice and he received the message that God had for him. What happens in that place? I love these words from Henry Nouwen. He says, through the discipline of contemplative prayer, Christian leaders, and really every Christian, has to learn to listen again and again to the voice of love and to find there the wisdom and the courage to address whatever issue presents itself to them. Dealing with the burning issues without being rooted in a deep, personal relationship with God easily leads to divisiveness because before we know it, our sense of self gets caught up in our opinion about a given subject. But when we are securely rooted in personal intimacy with the source of life, listen to these words, it will be possible to remain flexible without being relativistic. That's an important distinction, I think. Flexible, without being relativistic. Convinced, without being rigid. Willing to confront, without being offensive. Gentle and forgiving, without being soft. And true witnesses, without being manipulative. I think those are very insightful words as we sit alone with Jesus in that, in that meditation and prayer and we receive God's word. Yes, we become flexible and convinced. We are willing to confront. We are gentle and forgiving. We are true witnesses without the vices that go along with them of relativism and rigidity, offensiveness. Yes, the gospel will always be offensive. Let the message be offensive, but we are never called to be offensive in the way we present it. We are to be gentle. We are not to be, to use a Pauline word, pugnacious, a fight picker. We are to be witnesses without being manipulative. All these things. That happens when I sit alone with Jesus. 
So this is our first priority, the daily nurture of our own soul. Before we do anything else, we, we have to nurture our own walk with God to become more and more familiar with his voice, with his ways, to sit in his presence, to gaze at his beauty, to, to know him even as we are known by him. The second lesson I think that comes out of this passage is that we must be men and women who know their true identity. We must be men and women who know their true identity. I think if truth, the truth were known, most of us live in a constant state of identity confusion or identity crisis, wondering who am I, what am I all about, and all of that, that kind of stuff. And I hear those kinds of questions from people all the time. It's one of the most basic questions we, we ask ourselves. Who are we? Who am I as God's person? God says here, verse 5, that you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. This is the, the people that God has redeemed out of slavery, and certainly it describes God's covenant people here in the Old Testament. But Christopher Wright, who I appreciate very much as a commentator and a missiologist, reminds us these events, this story, this is what frames the story of all of God's people. It's not just this event here. Every one of us has a story of redemption. Every one of us has a story of being brought out of Egypt and into this place of, of freedom spiritual freedom. We are brought into this story as God's redeemed people in this generation for this time, and we, we are his treasured possession among all his possessions for, as he says here, all of the earth is mine. I think here is where we see our true identity in the light of God's greater purposes Here's where our story connects with, with God's mission. You see, it takes us back to the, to the Abrahamic covenant, where God says to Abraham, I will bless you, and through you I will bless all the nations of the earth. We are a blessed people, to be sure. We, we are blessed by God, not because of anything that we have done, but by His choice. But notice we are blessed for the purpose of carrying that blessing to all the nations. Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant, God says to Abraham, I will bless you, and I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to bless you not for the purpose that you can sit and enjoy that blessing, but I am going to bless you for the purpose of taking that blessing and sharing that blessing with the rest of the earth. We see the same thing in Psalm 67. God blesses us so that we can bless the rest of the world. We sometimes talk about the difference between a river and a reservoir. A river carries water from one place to another. And then a reservoir just takes that water and holds it into one place. You know the interesting difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea? They're connected by the same river. Did you realize that? The Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, comes out. Sea of Galilee is filled with life, filled with fish filled with things that, that help sustain the life of the people around that area. But then the Dead Sea, it's dead. Nothing grows in it. The Jordan River flows into that, but you know what? Nothing flows out of it. It just holds the water there, and it doesn't go anywhere from there. And it's dead. 
And that is a picture, I think, of what God intends for his people. I want you to be this river that carries this blessing from one place to another, not this dead body of water that just hoards it to yourself, keeps it to yourself and says, no, this is mine, nobody else's. Guess what? There is death in that. Now, God says, as my redeemed people Find your identity in the context of who I am and what I have called you to be and what I have called you to do. Don't keep this to yourself, but bless the rest of the world. We are God's redeemed people. But God's vision and God's mission extends to all people of the earth. We are unique people in all of the earth, and that identity carries a responsibility. We are God's treasured possession. Notice that word possession. A possession doesn't own itself. A possession is owned by someone or something else. We are God's treasured possession. He owns us. There's submission in that. There is a sense of relationship in that. There is the realization, yeah, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. I have been redeemed. He owns me, and he can do with me whatever he likes. But he treasures me. He values me. He loves me. I am his treasured possession for the purpose of sharing that treasure, sharing that blessing with other people, not just holding it to myself. And that takes us to our third observation here. Third, we must be men and women who know their calling. This answers our question of purpose. What are we here for? I think we find two words in this passage that help us to understand our purpose. The first, he says, verse 6, you shall be a kingdom of priests. The Old Testament, the priests served two primary functions. The first function was to make known God's ways and God's commands to God's people. And this is why when the people, when God says that the people have no knowledge of me, the priests were the ones who were disciplined first. They were the ones who were blamed because they had not taught the ways of God to the people. That is a priestly function, is to make the people aware of, to make them to know God's ways, God's commands, God's laws, God's teaching, these kinds of things. Secondly, the priest brings the sacrifices of the people to God. When the people have sinned, they bring the sacrifice to the priest, and he, he, he makes the sacrifice on their behalf, and that sin is atoned for. They are redeemed, and they are, they are brought back into fellowship with God. But notice this priest has a function in between God and man. The priest sits in between these two, these two people. And God says, you are a kingdom of priests. You are standing in this place between God and the people. You represent the people to God, and you represent God to the people. When we intercede on behalf of a lost world, we are fulfilling a priestly function. When we share the truth of God, when we evangelize, we are fulfilling a priestly function. When we help people to discover God's way and God's will and God's word, we are fulfilling a priestly function in this world. The New Testament picks up the same idea, especially in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness, redemption, and into his wonderful light. Again, Christopher Wright reminds us the mission of God's people then includes being God's priesthood in the world. 
we are a representative people. Our task is to represent the living God to the world and to bring the world to acknowledge the living God. I think we have to realize, too, that our role as priests does not thrust us into places of prominence or influence. Our world loves prominence and influence, don't they? Scripture says that as a priest of God, I am called to be a servant. Servants of God and servants of people. There is always the spectacular in this world, and there's always this temptation in ministry to do the spectacular to make great names for ourselves, that that is not the way of Jesus and it is not the way of his people. I assure you, there is very little glamour in feeding sheep and restoring the messed up lives of broken people. There's no glamour in that. But that's exactly what we are called to be and to do. That's what we've experienced and that's what we're, we're called to help other people experience as well. There's a second phrase here, though, that I think is very important. He says, you are not only a kingdom of priests, you are a holy nation. At its core, this term holy has the idea of being set apart something that is distinctive, something that is different, something that has a, a particular purpose. God is described as holy, and he is utterly and completely different, unique from any other thing in all the world that is worshipped. And we are called to be holy as well. Turn with me to Leviticus Chapter 19, we'll finish up here. Leviticus 19, verse 2 says, And you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We are a holy nation. We are a holy people. The very term that describes God he says, should describe us as well. So often when we think about being a missional people, we think about this idea of going on mission. I'm going to go to name any country in the world. I'm going to go there and be a missionary. God says, no, you want to be my missional people. This is where it starts. Doing the work that is certainly entailed in evangelism and discipleship, those are great things, but, but we, have, we, we, we cannot avoid this very basic and foundational truth that the very first part of being missional people is paying attention to our personal holiness. That is what it means to be a missional person. This is where it starts. Do I recognize, first of all, the uniqueness of God, the set-apartness of God? Do I recognize the uniqueness of me, the set-apartness of me in this world, in this society? Do I understand that about our church? We should look different from the rest of society. We should look different from the rest of the world. If we are going to be people who, who preach about the transforming power of the gospel, how are we doing it, demonstrating that transforming power in the rest of the world? One of the interesting things about God's people in the Old Testament is that they were a unique people. They were a holy people. And they said to God, we don't want to look different from the rest of the world. We don't want to look different from other people. We want a king like all the other nations. And God says, yeah, they've rejected me as their king. I want my people to look different. I don't want them to look the same as everybody else. You see, God's missional purpose in the Old Testament was not so much to send people out to evangelize and to preach and to do things in other places. No, God's missional purpose in the Old Testament was to create a people who were so different and so unique that it would get the attention of everybody else in the world and draw them in. 
We see that in passages like Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, where God is describing the the law. Moses is, is describing the law to the people, and he says that when people see this law, when people see you as a nation, they will look at you and say, what kind of a God do they serve who has laws that are so righteous and so good? What kind of a God is this that has created a nation that is so distinctly different from the rest of the world, and it will draw them in? We see the same thing in Second Chronicles chapter 6, in Solomon's prayer of dedication to the temple, as he prays and says, O oh Lord, when the sojourners, when people in other lands come to this temple to pray, For certainly they will, as they hear what kind of a God you are, hear their prayers as well. Because they will be drawn in to worship you. Interesting, Isaiah calls the temple the house of prayer for all the nations. This is God's missional plan in the Old Testament that that, that we be so uniquely different from the world around us that it would get the world's attention and draw them in. There is a powerful witness in our community and in our world when God's people look more and more like God himself, when we, we bear the family resist, resemblance of our heavenly Father. Well, what does that look like? So often when we think about holiness, I think we have these, these funny images of 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 stained glass saints, you know, well, that person is really holy, you know, and I'm not quite sure what that means, but God gives us a picture of holiness here in Leviticus 19. I think it's one of the best pictures of holiness in all the Bible. He says, verse verse 2, you shall be holy as I am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. Respect your parents. That's a sign of holiness. I am the Lord your God. Keep the Sabbath. We would expect that. Don't turn to idols. We would expect that. Offer your sacrifices. We would expect that. But look at verse 9. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. No, what should you do? Leave them for the poor, the sojourner, the immigrant, the people who can't take care of themselves. That's a sign of holiness, generosity, giving to those people who have very little. Look at verse 11. You shall not steal. Don't deal falsely. Don't lie to one another. Don't swear by my name. Look at verse 13. Don't oppress your neighbor. Don't rob him. Don't curse the deaf. Don't put a stumbling block before the blind. How do we treat handicapped people? How do we treat the, least, the less fortunate in our society? Look at verse 15. Don't do injustice in court. Don't go around as a slanderer among your people. Don't gossip. Look at verse 17. Don't hate your brother. Don't hate him in your heart. Don't think hateful thoughts. Don't take vengeance. Don't bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Keep my statutes. Verse 20, he talks about sexual purity. Don't profane your daughter. Don't don't turn to mediums and wizards. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. That means more to me all the time. Honor the face of this old man, and you shall fear your God. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. Why? Because you once were strangers. You were sojourners. You were immigrants. You were refugees in another country. Holiness has a lot to say about how we think about refugees and immigrants in our time. God's word has something very clear to say how we should respond as holy people to some of these issues of our time. 
What do we see here in Leviticus 19? We see that holiness is played out in the everyday decisions of everyday life. Talks about weights and measures, lengths and quantities there in verse 35 and 36, just balances and things like this. Our holiness is the everyday business of every one of us. And it works itself out in these very, very practical ways. Integrity and respect, honoring one another, caring for one another, caring for those, especially in society, who cannot care for themselves. But I want you to notice the refrain that runs all through this chapter. He says, I am the Lord. The constant refrain is a reminder that everything God's people do is a reflection of the God that they serve. Everything you and I do as individuals, everything we do as a church is not merely a reflection of me. It's not just a reflection on my own character. No, it is a reflection on God himself. That's where we get our identity from. And in this constant refrain, I am the Lord, God is telling Moses and he's telling us, your identity is linked to me, to who I am, to what I have done. Your actions have consequences far greater than you may imagine. Your actions declare you as my people. Your actions give the world a glimpse of the, the kind of God you worship, the kind of God you serve. I think before we can even think about missional plans, programs, visions, and those kinds of things, we have to come to terms with this basic truth. How are we doing at demonstrating to the world what true Christ-likeness looks like? True holiness. That's where missional living begins. This is our identity and this is our purpose. This is what it means to be the missional people of God. We, we have experienced his past grace. We have a new identity. We have a new purpose. We are to live out that identity as God's holy and treasured possession. And we live with such attractive obedience of good works that people will be attracted to the God that we worship. And whatever they say about us, they will come to glorify him.